I would ask you to turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, where Mike began to read. We started this series a year ago, Labor Day weekend. We went through John 6 and took breaks in the Psalms, Isaiah 53, and a summer series in prayer, and we're going to be back in taking the fall for much of the fall for the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you in one of the chairs. It will be helpful for you to follow along throughout John as I read bits and pieces of it, but then we're going to focus on three verses, um, verses 37 through 39. I am very thankful for places like Linden Family Eye Care. I wear these new glasses that are progressives, which means I can see at three different levels. It, means, it also means that I'm getting a little older. And, and I'm thankful because I am absolutely blind without them. I cannot get by without either glasses or contact lenses. And when I wear contact lenses, I can't see to read. And I'm quite, quite dependent on aid to see. And it reminds me that you and me are absolutely dependent and have a need for us to adequately see what we need to see. The heart of this sermon and the goal of this sermon series and the goal of this book and the goal of Gospel of John that we're studying again is for you and for me to see and to savor the person of Jesus with all your heart in such a way that it changes you to receive him and believe on his name, to become more like him with transformed desires in mind and to share him with others with a great and renewed and a new zeal. We must see Jesus, but we can't just see him with natural eyes. We come into our lives being told about Jesus, but that's not enough. We need something to tell it to our hearts and to give us spiritual eyes to see him. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says that far too often, seeing we do not see. And hearing, we do not hear. The type of seeing I'm talking about is a spiritual sight that doesn't just see these these truths about this religious leader, Jesus, but we savor him. We find our hearts going, "I, I love him and I want him and I want to trust in him and I want to give all my life to him. He really is life, the only life. To truly see Jesus is to taste and see that he is truly good and to begin to enjoy him like you never had before. It is to see that he is a priceless treasure. He is the source of purest pleasure. To see him is to know that he is a surpassing worth, as Paul said, that nothing else matters. To savor Jesus is to prize him in your heart, knowing he is worthy to be prized. And if you savor him, truly delight in him like you ought, it's because you saw him rightly. And if you do not savor him or love him, it's because you have not yet 
seen him as he truly is. The deficiency is not in Jesus, but in our eyes, our spiritual eyes, really our hearts. The fact that we could study the work of Jesus and not treasure him, savor him, delight in him, love him and trust him is a testimony not of who he is, but of our condition. We are spiritually blind and we need sight. And I pray that God would through his word. And this fall as we look at John, and through a very limited, broken messenger, preacher, we would see Jesus in the way I'm talking about. For that to happen, the gift that it is promised is in this text that I want you to see this morning. Let's look at John 7. We're not going to read the entire chapter. There's 52 verses. Sometimes we will read the entire chapter. This morning, I want to select certain parts of it and walk you through it a little bit, and then I want to focus on a few verses. Let's, so it would be most helpful. It's not going to be on the screen. The three verses will be, but where I'm going to read now, if you can walk, follow along with me. Verse 1. After the, this, Jesus went about in Galilee. It's a north country. It's the country. And he went to go about in Judea, down where Jerusalem is, he would not go to Jerusalem because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, skip down to verse 11 and 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, while others said, no, he's leading people astray. Mike read these verses. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. As you just remember, Mike mentioned, his brothers didn't even believe him. They were almost kind of sarcastic. If you're who you say you are, why don't you go to Jerusalem so everybody can see who you are? Now skip down to verse 25, John 7, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, it it says that he went now to Jerusalem. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the, the Christ, that word means Messiah? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ, the Messiah, appears, no one will know who, where he comes from. Look at verse 32, a few verses later. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers, soldiers, to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and that I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Verse 43, towards the end of the chapter. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. I skipped three verses that I want to focus on. I think they're the high point of this passage. I, I get to say the climax of what's happening in the temple at, the food, at the, this feast of booths. 
I skipped them, and so would you look with me at the three verses that are going to be up on the screen, but if you want to look at in your Bibles, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, it's the Feast of Booths, I'll say more about it in a minute, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm going to call this the great invitation. The great invitation. Here are eight things to ponder as we look deeper at these three verses. Eight things about this great invitation. You can do this with any text. Take a small passage like this and just start reading and rereading and rereading and see how each of phrases and words relate to one another. What's going on? Think about these texts and ask the Spirit to guide and direct you as you meditate on passages like this glorious text, verses 37 through 39. Let's look at eight things. One, the inviter. I'm calling it the great invitation. So who who initiates that? The inviter or the, the host that invites somebody. The inviter is Jesus. We see that Jesus is speaking. And who is this Jesus that Mike made mention of in our confession this morning? Who is this Jesus that we read in this book? Well, this passage, this book that we've been reading in John, I will remind you because we haven't been there for a while. It says all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Or John says, though the law was given through the great Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, who everybody revered, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the promised one. He is the great Messiah. He is the Christ. Some of them are getting this right. He is the one who has already in this gospel saved a wedding scandal by turning water into the best wine you could ever have, showing his power over all elements. And yet when his mother asks him to do this or to help in the wedding, he says, what is this about me? My hour has not yet come. He's looking to a moment, an hour. He's the one who's walked on water, fed the thousands with a few pieces of bread and fish. He's healed the sick, both Jew and Gentile. He has made the lame walk. He's the one who is dividing people, having done it on the Sabbath. Many are offended when Jesus says to them in the last chapter, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread from the Father. You must eat of me. You must drink of me 
or else you will not live. And they're thinking, what in the world? And some of them go away saying, he is insane or he's a lunatic or what is, who is this person? And they can't handle his words. And yet Peter says, where else should we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And as we've seen in this chapter, Jesus is a lightning rod. Jesus is somebody that people are mounting now opposition against. They plot to kill him and to arrest him. And some are, some are saying he must be good to speak this way. And brothers, his own siblings, the children of Mary and Joseph, don't even believe him at this point. He is confusing others they don't know what to do with this inviter, this person. This is, this is a great invitation, and it comes from Jesus. He's a man like this world had never seen. This world doesn't know what to do with him. Let us take heart as we dig into it this morning. Would you listen and prepare to respond to Jesus but number two, the occasion. What's the occasion here of this great invitation? Look, he says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. And if you were to look back, actually scroll through this chapter, you'd see verse two, now the, the feast of booths was at hand. Crowds are divided about Jesus. We've seen that in chapter six. Some leave, some stay. Some are offended. Now we are here in Jerusalem. It's the capital of all religious life. And it's a time and a holiday where not anybody just in their own homes at wherever city they are, they celebrate. No, everybody packs up if they're a faithful worshiper of Yahweh and they travel to Jerusalem and they, they create these booths, these tents. It's the booth of tabernacles. It was a symbolic way of reminding them that their forefathers, way back into the time of, e of Exodus, they came out of the wilderness. They were delivered into the wilderness. God took care of them, and they lived in booths. They lived in tents for a long time, and God fed them with manna in the wilderness. And he fed them by opening and Moses spoke or struck a rock and water gushed out and provided them sustenance in the desert. God cared for them and loved them and watched over them, guided them and protected them and they would go and they would celebrate this in Jerusalem. And here's when Jesus shows up at this feast, this celebration that would go on for seven full days and on this, after the seventh day, on the eighth day, it was like a Sabbath and it was the great ending and climax of it all. I want to say to you during this time that Jesus gets up in probably the temple or right outside the temple. What they would do is every day they would celebrate this great feat by also reminding themselves this was the time of harvest. And at the Feast of Booths, they would be reminded God must provide for the harvest. We thank you for the harvest and we ask God that you provide and we thank you that you water the earth so that we can have a harvest. So there's this water element. God fed them and provided water in the desert. And so what they would do is every day on these seven days, they would take a gold pitcher of one of the priests and they had a big parade and processional where they would go to the Pool of Siloam and they would 
dip in there and take water, and they would march to the temple. And while they did that, they sang songs and hymns. One of the songs was from Isaiah 12, 3. The joy, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would bring that water into the temple, and they would pour it on an altar as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and dependence on God for his provision and care. And it was at that moment that Jesus gets up and he pronounces a great invitation. So what's the manner of this invitation? I want you to see what's the manner of an invitation. A manner of an invitation could come in different ways. It could be in the area of just a casual, hey, I was wondering if you'd come over to our house today. That could be a casual invitation. Another kind of invitation would be for for us to engrave something or embroider something or print something up and send it to you and you receive this formal, flashy invitation requesting a response of whether you are coming here. What is the manner of Jesus' invitation? We see verse 37, Jesus stood up and he cried out. He proclaimed with zeal, with prophetic authority. And yet, if you combine this with these words, he stood up and he cried out. And the message he cries out, this great invitation, you, you hear an urgency, a compassion, a mercy, an authority, a very caring invitation. it's quite astounding as we really dig into what he said and where he said it and how it might have sounded to everybody if you were there. But I do want us to just ponder as we just dig into what that invitation is, and we're going to see that now. These are not mere words of history, but they're also news, good news, and personal entreaty to you, to me. To us, a fresh faith church, for you visiting, for you that are not yet a Christian or not certain of where you are with Christ or with you are with Christ, but you need to hear this invitation once again. As we get to the invitation, we get an inquiry. That's number four. There's an inquiry. What I mean by inquiry is the question. It's, there's a question he starts out his invitation with. Be like, is anybody, is anybody want to watch the Super Bowl tonight? Come on over to our house. There's a question that leads to the invitation, a question that distinguishes those of whom he is now inviting. And here's the inquiry, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, he asks, are you thirsty? Who's thirsty? Uh, imagine this, he stands up and there's this big crowd and he's already a lightning rod. Some say, Should we, is he going to get arrested? He's good. No, he's not good. He's dividing the people and he gets up there and they must quiet it down because they're like wondering, what is he going to say? And he stands up and he shouts, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, it rings with the words of Isaiah 55. He knew the Bible and they knew the Bible at this time. And I wonder if they're thinking these words, 
This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. Come, anyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money and has no, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What Jesus is not saying right here is he's not saying, I have brought a water supply today. Is anybody interested Everyone knows that the type of thirst that he's talking about here is a a metaphor, a picture of something spiritual, something that goes deep down in the heart of a person. It's like hunger, this spiritual hunger. And he says, anyone, think about what thirst is. Thirst is not only having a need for water, or drink, it's knowing you have a need. You might need water, you might need food, but something has happened in your body where you're not hungry, or you're not thirsty. To be thirsty is to have a need and know you have a need. And he says, all you who know you have a need, because you do have a need, and he's going to give an invitation to them. All those who are seeking to have their thirst quenched, I have a message for you. I have an invitation to you. We all need to drink. And being thirsty is a gift. We all need and we know we need that. You and I thirst to be fulfilled. I That fulfillment comes in. I, I want security in my life. I want to feel safe. I guess you do too. I want, I want a thirst for satisfaction. I want my life to mean something. I want to feel fulfilled. I don't want just to waste my life. I want, I want significance. And there's a longing in each one of us to be truly fulfilled and happy. To truly have a type of joy, a meaning, and a purpose. And frankly, it's not really getting met because people are seeking it all kinds of ways and they're destroying themselves in their way they seek it. They seek it in illicit sex and in drugs and drink and in food and in relationships that keep coming up empty and does not satisfy our thirst. All of us could say, I I have a thirst. I have a need. All of us need sin taken care of. All of us need to live the way we were made. We need God and we need fellowship with him. We all have a hole and it needs to be filled. Everyone has a need. In some ways, everyone is thirsty and there is a seeking of satisfaction in some place. And yet far too often, Jeremiah describes our problem in Jeremiah 2, or God through Jeremiah, when he says, God says to his people, you rebellious people, and we, could, we, we find ourselves this way all the time, be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly dis- desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils, you have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and you have just dug up for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. I have offered to you life and bounty and supply and satisfaction, and you've forsaken me, and you've dug up these cisterns, and they really hold nothing. 
Anyone hungry? Truly hungry, spiritually hungry? I'm afraid so many of us are not feeling the spiritual hunger we need. We don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. As Jesus said, the blessed are. Instead, we're satisfied with temporary health. We'll just be gone in a second. Family, a blessing. Wealth, jobs, toys, distractions that surround us, some of which are great gifts from God, but never are meant from God to be the source of our meeting the thirst that we really have, satisfying the thirst. We live in a world, and one of our great problems is that we, thirst, we are not thirsty for the right thing. And we're drinking from mud puddles that are far in- inferior, and they're eternally destructive, and they're going to soon dry up. I hope you ponder your need this morning. I hope all of us will ponder. We'll hear Jesus say, are you thirsty? And all of us will go, go, okay, what does he mean in my life? And what does that really mean? Am I, 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 I am thirsty. Am I thirsty for the right thing? Am I seeking to satisfy my thirst in the right way? Or is the way that I'm going just a dried up cistern that will hold no water? Are you thirsty to have your shame removed? Are you thirsty to live for what matters and not for the small, selfish pursuits we're all inclined to? Are you thirsty to find true forgiveness? Oh, the, the cleansing of that forgiveness from God and from others. Are you thirsty to change? But you, see, you feel so paralyzed and unable to do so. Are you thirsty for real relationship and you're lonely? This invitation is for you. So what is the invitation? Verse 37, we see at, towards the end, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. To come to Jesus is to come to the one who defines what our need is. We need drink from him. And he meets our need. He is not just the provider of the need. He is the need itself that we have. We need him. Jesus defines our need and the meter of that need. He made us. He sustains us. And is the only one who can truly satisfy us. You just This is quite a remarkable statement that Jesus gives in this statement. I mean, just imagine this. All the crowd shushes everybody and says, be quiet. Jesus is about to say something. He stands up and he rises and he cries out. Is anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. They're thinking, what? What does that mean? Coming to Jesus is coming to a real person who provides and offers himself to you. Coming to Jesus is an act of faith that confesses to him, Jesus, you and you alone must save. I can't do it at all. I need you. And oh, the 
the human soul is thirsty for something and they don't often until the Holy Spirit shows them knows that what they're thirsting for is truly God. I, I just keep remembering C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity when he says, God made us, he invented us like a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol or gas. It would not properly run on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself, and I would say Jesus himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to run on and to burn on. Our, he is our food our spirits were designed to feed on, and there is no other. That is why it is no good to ask God to make us happy in our own way without bothering with him. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because there is none. There's no such thing. So let me, ask, let me speak as an ambassador of Jesus Christ this morning. All you who are thirsty, come to Jesus this morning to drink. Would you come to Jesus and drink? If you're thirsty, and I pray that he would help you see you need to be thirsty. Come to Jesus, the only, only source that will satisfy your soul. And what a bizarre thing for Jesus to stay on that day. But to those who were being called and drawn by the Holy Spirit, they didn't see it as bizarre. They saw it as the most natural thing, the most beautiful thing. That person who I see is different than anyone else, who I want more than anything else, even though I don't understand it, it is so strange. He must be from God. He is not just a prophet, he is the prophet. He is from God, and I must hear him this morning. And I hear his invitation, and I gladly, joyfully, amazingly come to him. He says, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Dear friend, come to Jesus this morning and drink. His invitations come in many forms and in different ways, but they're the same. He says to you, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you life. Come to me and I will forgive you your sins. Come to me and I will be your way to the Father. Come to me and I will be your shepherd. I am your life. I am the only life. Come to me, not with your merits, not with your good works, not with your cleanliness, not with all. In fact, he just says, come to me and I will will save you and I will give you eternal life. Come to me and you will find what you were always looking for though you didn't know it. Come to me and drink. So what's the outcome? What's the outcome of this invitation? What is the outcome of those who accept Jesus' invitation? Verse 38, he says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember what he told the Samaritan woman? You may, you may or may not in chapter four. He told the Samaritan woman at the well, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this, this just regular water from the well, it's good, it's Jacob's well, he'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, be, will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water living up to eternal life. Come to me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And in this passage, we see 
a priceless gift given to all who believe, to those who come to him and drink. Christ's lasting, and I want you to see what he says here. He says the outcome is a satisfaction of your soul, a saving of your soul that comes in the presence of, of, the, of another person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that comes in your life. Look at verses 38 and 39. I'm going to read them. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see? So it says, if you believed in Jesus, out of your heart, literally the Greek word is actually out of your belly. It's a strange idea if we tried to draw a picture of it, but it's a spiritual, it's a metaphor idea. Out of your belly, out of your heart will come rivers of living water. There's living water. I mean, I think of 12-foot falls growing up. We'd go swimming at that place or eight-foot falls. We'd jump in the river and it was flowing, living water. It was fresh. It smelled good. It didn't feel stale. It was cold and refreshing as we swam. And then there's the swamp across the street that gets filled up when, especially when it rains and it's green and ugly. I mean, what there's a difference here between those things. This idea of living waters that comes from us and renew, renews and, re, and, and refreshes and gives continual flow of life. Here's the picture. He says, those that believe, you'll receive in your heart, coming out of your heart, this, this rivers of living water. And then we get John interpreting what this means in verse 39. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. That Spirit had been working in the Old Testament Israel. It worked in, gave, came to Moses and blessed him, came to David and blessed him, God's people to bless him. But there was going to be a new time when the Holy Spirit will come upon all believers to empower them and give them this living water from within life, spiritual life. And he says, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had, was not yet glorified. And we see here that Jesus is saying, you get salvation. And this salvation is better than you could ever imagine. It comes in the presence of quenching your thirst and a living thirst-quenching relationship with God where the presence of the Holy Spirit comes. It comes to the depths of who you are and keeps going in your life, keeping you believing, keeping you trusting, guiding you, directing you, comforting, helping you. What a great, great outcome to all who take his invitation and come and drink. He promises us his Holy Spirit. I, I pray like Paul prayed at the end of Ephesians 3 when he says, I pray that the Spirit would so strengthen your inner person. And I pray that for all of us, that our inner person would be strengthened in our being so that we would see and treasure Jesus the way we would need to. His love, His grace, His mercy. And that from there, we would we'd be filled with the fullness of God. God offers that to us, to fill us with the fullness of God. To go about your work this week with the fullness of God, the Spirit of God working, living in you, 
for you this week with your family and your children and with your parents or your school, the living God living and abiding, working in you from within. So what is the cost of this? The cost, verse 39, he says, yet Jesus was not yet glorified. And earlier in this chapter, he says, my time has not come. And he, we find this idea of he was not glorified is something that Jesus means in the Gospel of John is that there's going to come a time when he would be stretched out on a cross and that would be the great glory and hour of his glorification. John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And he was saying that because they were about to arrest him and he was going to be taken, he was going to be tried He was going to be killed, crucified, and risen from the dead. What is this glorification? The cost of him providing this invitation, this glorious invitation that I get to extend to you once again today is that Jesus was lifted up on a cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him, the crucified Christ, may have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. So the last thing I just want to say is What about the acceptance of the invitation? He says, whoever believes in me. That's how you accept the invitation. To come and drink is to believe. He says, come to me and drink if you're thirsty. And that means you're believing. And if you're believing, as the scripture says, out of your heart will come living water. To believe in this way, friends, is to believe with your head and your heart and your hand. What does that mean? It means you believe, yes, that he really is your only way, but in then doing so, you trust in him. You come to him. You're repenting of your sins and you receive him. All who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. Jesus said in the chapter before, I am the bread of life. Very similar to I am something that you need to satisfy your thirst. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So I conclude with these words. I conclude with these questions to you, to all of us, to to Christian and non-Christian. What have you done with his invitation? Have you heard that invitation? I'm guessing you probably have in the past. What will you do? If you're not thirsty, Oh, I pray that you will be thirsty. You will see that you need to be thirsty. It's something is wrong that you're not thirsty. You are meant to, you need, and you need to know you have a need. And I hope you see that that's Jesus is the only satisfaction. For those that are thirsty, come and drink. If you find your soul this morning welling up saying, I need Christ, I want him. That's not you. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. Would you respond by coming to him and drink, drinking And if you're here this morning and you've already drank, 
But you're no longer thirsty, but you need to be thirsty. You need to be thirsty for him, but you feel like you've kind of just, it's been dull and dry. And Oh, may you come once again and hear his voice inviting you to him to drink. There is a hunger that keeps on hungering. As the hymnist says, we taste of thee, O living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls to fill. Oh, that the Spirit would work in us, dear friends. He's given us living water that has been given to us, the Holy Spirit that is at work in us. Oh, I'm afraid that we as people do not know adequately how good we have it. Do you know how good you have it? The Holy Spirit is working us. We forget this, believers. And that's, I'm sure, I know that's most of us. We forget in the midst of all our stresses and all our struggles and our blessings, we forget how good He has been to us and what He does for us. He is our helper and He's in us. He's our guarantee, so why do we doubt? He's our strength, so why do we despair of our own weakness? Yes, you are weak. Doesn't matter. He's strong. He's with you. He's present. Don't think you're alone. He's the spirit that brings love. He loves you more than you can imagine. He is victory over sin, so why do we think we need to remain in defeat of sin if he's with us and he's in us? He is the token of love reminding us that we are covered by the blood of Christ. We have been forgiven so that we don't need to listen to the lies of Satan accusing us anymore. I think we can forget that as Christians. We can forget what has been given to us. So thank him. Trust in him. Call on him. Drink again daily. Go to Jesus by his spirit daily. Go to his word. Come with hunger on Sunday mornings, praying, God, please, I don't hunger enough. I ask that you would help my taste buds to go after what really matters week in and week out, day by day. Pray that the word, pray and use the word and pray on your drives and in your walks and at set times and on your knees and in your bed and with your family Cry out to him and come to him and he satisfies. And I lastly ask you, do you know why he does this for us? Do you know the purpose in which he has given us this satisfying water? It's not for us just to sit upon and be selfishly fulfilled. He calls us to ministry and worship. We are beggars who have been thirsting in a desert and we've found an oasis, a drink that replenishes and nourishes. And we don't bring our buckets of muddy and stale water to that oasis and just pour it in there and try to supply it in our own strength. Instead, we get on our hands and knees and we drink of Christ, we drink of his glorious grace and we drink of its satisfaction and we get up and we say, ah, and worship And we go to look around and say, who else needs this? Who else needs this fountain of life as God's living water abides in us? Brothers and sisters, and for those who have not yet come, if anyone thirsts, 
let him come to Jesus and drink. Whoever believes in Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Would you bow with me to pray? Father, I do pray that you would exalt your son Jesus. I pray that you would help us to come. Help us to find ourselves thankful and hoping and seeking thirsting and also being satisfied in Christ. Oh God, show us the joy of our salvation by understanding what this means of rivers of living water. I pray that you would please take those that have been away from you, are away from you, have never come to you, and I pray that they would believe and they would come and they would drink. And they would drink and they would find satisfaction in Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.